0: This is the Bill Kelly Show
1: Podcast. Hometown hockey finally comes to Hamilton this weekend. We talked about this way back when they started the schedule at the beginning of the hockey season. And uh, we told you that the final weekend was going to be the big one here in Hamilton with all kinds of fabulous uh, activities lined up for uh, the waterfront down at Pier 8 where it's all going to be happening. Joining us to talk about this is uh, the host of Hockey Night in Canada, the host of Hometown Hockey, the legendary Ron McLean joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Ron, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. It is great to be, Bill. Uh, listen, before we get into all the stuff that's going to be happening this weekend, I've I, I got to ask you very quickly because you've never wanted to be shied away from, from controversy and, and from topi- topics that are, are obviously front of mind with hockey fans right now. Uh, what about uh, the NHL decision not to go to the Olympics?
0: Well, it's funny, Pat Quinn, right? We're coming to Pat's uh, hometown. Yeah, yep. and, uh, he made us uh, so proud in 2002 with uh, the way he coached that men's team, the speech he gave before the game, which uh, I don't know if you know, Bill, but it was a an epic story of a really tense moment. Canada hasn't won since 1952. It's the Americans' arch rivals. It's tons of pressure. And he goes in, and his speech to the boys was Now, we all saw the game three nights ago when the women won the gold medal they had eight straight penalties called against them uh, they kept it together they could have played that game for a month you guys they weren't going to lose because of their composure and that's how we have to be if we get a couple of chintzy calls if they score the first goal we cannot melt down we got a bottom line I want you to go out there and play like a bunch of women and that's what he said <laughs> Pat, and it broke up the room and I know it's sexist and I, I God knows uh, after uh, you know the Junos and everything else uh, I don't want to be yeah, disrespectful. But Pat, but Pat knew it
1: exactly what he was doing didn't he? Well he knew
0: and he got them to laugh and I can remember vividly seeing Owen Nolan, another Irishman, coming out the tunnel with a big glint in his eye, and uh, they just hit the ice in a great frame of mind, uh, and they got the job done. So anyway, I, I, I love the Olympic moment. It's one of the highlights. Uh, certainly, the others in Vancouver and Sochi are right there with the women, in particular, in 2014 winning. Um, it's tough for uh, the NHL not to be there. The only, only slight thing that has always been in the back of my mind, Bill. Is I love to see Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby together, but in a in a funny way. Uh, whether it was uh, union activities or Olympics or best on best tournaments, I didn't like to see arch enemies become friends. <laughs> if you can if you can understand that. So yeah, yeah I, I see the point. That, sure, that's the one thing that I, I I didn't want them too chummy. I didn't want to know that when Jonathan Taves and Sidney Crosby are playing against one another, they're having a hard time competing because it did happen in the World Cup in 1996. Canada lost to the USA because Mark Messier would not hit Brian Leach. So there's a bit of a conflict there that, uh, that has always been in the back of my mind. But still, uh, you, you know, I love the idea of Olympics. I love that you're playing. I, I think they absolutely are extortionists, the IOC, but I I love the idea of you are doing something that goes beyond uh, business You're You're sort of representing
1: not not so much nationalism,
0: but the idea of everyone in it together.
1: The other side, I guess, if you're looking at this as the glasses half full sort of a thing, it it does give an awful lot of other good hockey players in this country a shot at international competition. They kind of got shoved to the side a little bit, haven't they, Ron? Yeah,
0: and in 1992, when Eric Lindros was leading the charge and it was uh, the amateurs, for lack of a better word, uh, it was Fantastic. You know, Todd Lusko joined us in our hometown hockey in Guelph last week. He won a silver medal in a yeah. little hammer. Those were great teams with lots of great storylines. I mean, you know a Bulldogs game can be as exciting as an NHL game uh, when it's for all the marbles, so it, it will still have all that. And I think for the league, uh, you know, it, it might be a little misstep in the United States because NBC does primetime coverage in such a great way uh, that the National Hockey League is going to be competing in the dog days of their NHL season. Where every reporter is going to be going to the players and saying, "How do you feel about not being in South Korea?" Uh, I think that might be a misstep south of the border. Up here, we're gonna we're gonna watch uh, whatever team Canada we ice, and we're still gonna stick by the NHL. But I don't know about south of the border.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the implications of this are gonna go on for quite some time. And, and like you say, just when you think it's gonna die down, of course, the Olympics will be upon us, and it's gonna be front of mind for everybody else too. But uh, they've they've got their reasons, and, and you know I was talking to Howard Berger about this the other day on the program, and, and Howie was not surprised by this either. I mean, you, you could see this coming, couldn't you, Ron?
0: Yeah, I think the uh, you know I, I just what I don't like about it is it's just one more uh, thing that they've done to the players that I'm not sure is in their best interest as an ownership group. They they won the lockout, sound in 2004 or five. Uh, they've they've got cost certainty. Um, I think the players, you know. As a rule, Bill, most of the successful players are making so much money that they're satisfied. So it's hard for uh, Don Fear or whoever happens to be running the Players Association to create uh, much momentum in terms of going to war for their rights. Um, But this is one that might just stick in the cross. So uh, I think I wonder if it was
1: a healthy thing with respect to the next set of collective bargaining negotiations. Uh, just one question more before we move on to what was, what's going to be happening this weekend. With that in mind, why didn't the NHLPA actually have this as, as one of the agenda items in those negotiations? I mean, they if they, this is so near and dear to them, they could have insisted on this. It didn't seem to come up in the negotiations, no, at least not Don that we are aware of.
0: You know, he's got a lot of concerns about what they're doing with their growth of the game right now. Yeah. Ultimately, the players have invested in Gary Bettman's vision of how to make money and, you know, grow their bank accounts. Uh, where they, I think, have not done a great job is on the international scene. And Don Fear was a big believer in the growth of the game, both in Europe and in Asia. So, you're right. It was probably a mistake on his part not to ensure that that was, uh, in the negotiation, but I think he felt it was precedent that they'd gone four or five years, or Olympic cycles, uh, that it was a done deal. So, he, he might have misread that situation. I don't know if that's coming over from baseball and, and not sort of understanding the underpinnings of this, um, but, you know, clearly the, the league had its nose at a joint at Sochi. They just felt they weren't given proper concessions. And they their big stickler, which, again, Don Fear could have been a part of this, uh, they needed the Olympic rings in, tan- in tandem with the NHL logo uh, to be able to market, and the IOC would not grant that. They never do. Uh, so he, Howard's right, and a lot of people, I guess, were right that, uh, you know, the league had its reasons. The PA now, though, I think is going to be hot about it. And I think that will be a bit of a, a thorn in the next
1: Healings. Well, let's cross that bridge. I know you and Don. I'm sure we'll talk about that on Saturday night for uh, for the game. But, uh, He's happy. He's happy as a pig <laughs> in mud.
0: He didn't want to go. He didn't want to go to either destination, right? So, I don't know if they'll try and revisit Beijing in uh, five years. But I know Don was not really keen on going. He, he went. We had a cycle there where he had to go to
1: Nagano, Japan, and he just said he got such a bad cold uh, in 1998. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember sorry. that. Yeah. Of crazy stuff. Hey, listen, uh, you're in town this weekend, of course, and uh, a great big festival on Saturday and Sunday, and of course culminating with the the big broadcast on Sunday, uh, and and uh, it's going to be an awful lot of fun. You and Tara are going to be, of course, uh, co-hosting this, uh, and you need about five or six hours just to talk about the Nurse family, just to introduce all of them. I know you're going to be talking with them and focusing on some of the, the great Hamilton area hockey players and athletes, and that's, that's one of the, the magical things that I love about what you guys do with Hometown Hockey, Ron.
0: Well, you know, and it's going to be for me, Bill, I lived in Ancaster for four years, yep. and I think of all the great uh, times I had at, uh, you know, the restaurant scene was great in Hamilton. In, in my day, it was Maxwell's and Shakespeare's and Presti's and Hutch's, of course, over on the beach, which we're not too far from with our Pier 8 location. Um, I remember refereeing at the then Mountain Arena, now Dave Anderchuk yep. Arena, and we've got a lovely profile on him. Um, you know, you Tom Cochran's coming to sing for us, which will be uh, great. You know, just his whole big leagues and uh, life is a highway thematically. He's really uh, tied into the hockey. So we have a great show, great weather in store. Everything's free for family and friends. Tara's actually out with the Marauders this morning. Yeah, I days. heard. Yeah. <laughs> so she's playing football with our great Marauders football program at McMaster, and that's going to be a chilly one. Uh, so, yeah, it's a lovely, I think the show, I hope the show is gaining as it should on a Sunday night, the night before the school week, the work week, uh, kind of a family couple of hours to sort of see ourselves as Canadians and what it is that makes each nook and cranny special.
1: Well, you mentioned Dave. Of course, Dave's a good friend of many people in the community, and uh, I know his mom and dad quite well, and uh, what a great history he's had, of course, from liner hockey all the way up through a Stanley Cup champion, of course, with Tampa Bay. Uh, you're going to talk about the Nurse family. Of course, we're no Darnell with the Oilers, but uh, there's quite a legacy there, Richie, of course, was a great football player for the Tiger Cats, and his daughters have been remarkable athletes, uh, going all the way back to Rachel, of course, who went to Syracuse on a track scholarship and hooked up with her, well, soon-to-be-husband, Donovan McNabb back in those days, and, and on and on it goes with Kia and, and, and everyone else. It's it's a remarkable story, and it's it's great that you have this opportunity when you go to, well, like Wealth the other day, to talk to some of those hometown heroes and the ones that, that those people in that community are aware of because they understand just how they came up from the neighborhoods in which they live.
0: And even uh, Isaac Nurse, who's a cousin, right, yep. and with the Hamilton Bulldogs. So the nurses
1: are, are clearly one of the first families. And, and Rich, think, Richard wasn't a bad hockey player. I played a lot of charity games with him. Yeah, they,
0: they gifted at everything, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, those genes and... Uh, And I love, you know, Dave Anderchuk, a really dear friend of mine, is Brad Richards of the 2004 Stanley Cup champion, Tampa Lightning, and Dave was the captain. He was the absolute glue. You know, it's funny, the Toronto Maple Leafs are life and death, right, to get into the playoffs right now. And i got a feeling it's going to come down to the Sunday afternoon telecast at Hometown Hockey, which is the Columbus Blue Jackets and the Leafs. So we're in Pat Quinn's uh, hometown. I'm banking on your luck of the Irish, uh, Bill, to get this done. (laughs) But but Dave, you know, he, he was a lighthearted guy. He he kept the team out. They were out. I remember Marty St. Louis thought, are we drinking too much? You know, because we they were having such a great group uh, dynamic all through that run. And that was Dave's leadership. He insisted on uh, not getting too, you know, nervous about things. He wanted to take the edge off a little bit from time to time. He did a great job. It was one of the greatest examples. And for him, for Andrew Chuck, he was the tail end of a, you know, many thousand-game career Uh he he was his last kick at it, and he still kept uh, you know kind of a proper perspective when he led them to that title in '04. So it's great. And I remember his mom when we were out in Calgary. Uh, we stayed at the hotel, the Westin. And I would go to the beer store to grab a beer for Don and me to drink in our room. And the only two people in the beer store every day were Dave's mom and Mika (laughs) Kippersock, goalie for the Calgary Flames, who wasn't too shabby. But it was a really funny tradition
1: that came out of that '04 4 cup. Yeah, we've had some great uh, discussions with Dave about that year, too. And that that was a classic situation, Ron. That used to happen a lot where teams would add a veteran as a a locker room guy. I mean, Dave obviously still had a lot of hockey talent and, and contributed greatly. To that Stanley Cup champion, but his his presence in the locker room and his leadership, as you mentioned, wearing the C on the jersey, I, I think was one of the key building blocks in those guys winning the championship that year.
0: Undeniable. And there was a guy. I remember Chris Dingman, who came out of Brandon Wheat Kings program, and he played in the in the sixth game at Calgary, where the Flames were coming home to cinch uh, the title. Uh, he Dingman and Anderchuk played all the big minutes. The, the Flames were a really physical team. Uh, Christophe Olovois played in Welland uh, in his junior B career. Uh, they were a big, tough team to play against, and Tampa was done. Brad Richards told me, me and Marty, we'd had it. We'd been pasted to the board so many times. We had l- very little gas left in the tank, and it was the bigger players who were able to hold up under that uh, barrage who got us through game six, which they won in double overtime, and then ultimately they got it done in game seven at home. He was great, and I think of Steve Steos. We're coming into Hamilton, you know, there was a great book on the Tigers, the 1925 NHL team, you know, obviously went on strike and left for New York, and the Wellesleys did a book uh, where they start with uh, the idea of Hamiltonians are well aware of their reputation, the tough little kid at the back of the class sporting two black eyes, and Pat Quinn's defiance, Dave Anderchuk at the tail end of his career, Steve Stales to get to 1,000 games in the NHL, real, you know, gentle spirit of a guy. So dogged, uh, just a you know. So that that'll be a kind of a thread, and of course the Nurse family with all their talent, that'll be a neat thread through the show. Well, Sunday.
1: it's interesting, yeah, because I mean, Steve, we were just talking about Dave Andrichuk's leadership with the with the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, that that Stanley Cup run the Oilers took that year. I mean, Steve again was a veteran guy that they picked up and a solid defenseman, but again a leadership guy in the dressing room, and that was a, that was a magical journey the Oilers went on that year.
0: He was a free agent signing, you're right, and so they got him for that express purpose. And I'll never forget Scott. Oak had him on after hours with Ethan Morrow, his good friend, uh, who was scouted by Jack Davidson of Oakville here. Uh, Ethan and uh, Steve are on with Scott Oak, who's a funny guy. And it was April Fools in Cal- uh, in Edmonton actually. The Flames had beaten Edmonton in Edmonton, and Scott was trying to have some fun with the guys, and they were livid, right? Uh, but but not Steve. <laughs> Ethan could barely muster a word in the interview, but Steve had a perspective again. And the Calgary, they would go on to lose Edmonton uh, key games in St. Louis. Uh, And Detroit. Uh, They got shuttered in Detroit, and it looked like they were done, much like Toronto's lost these last two games. Uh, But Steve's kind of spirit stood pat you know he didn't he didn't lose it and uh that was a big part of uh, i mean they had chris pronger was a great stud for them on the fence. Mm-hmm. but steve his way was really important to the oilers almost winning the cup
1: there in 06 you know ron when uh, when you and tara come in here for the uh the, the, the weekend uh, you always bring some great alumni with you darcy Tucker, of the great leaf is going to be along there talking about gritty hockey players but this is kind of a homecoming for shane corson too i know i know shane's from midland originally but i mean he played for the steelhawks here in junior hockey
0: a really important time in his uh you know, career. He got to the World Junior program because of it. Uh, so the two of them are Pat Quinn disciples. That's neat. Uh, great to have they're they're kind of brand ambassadors. We had Shane with us when we were in Barrie, Ontario, which is where he kind of considers yep. home now. And he, you know, his his talk about his father who he lost uh, you know, at the tail end of his career. Um, they're just both uh, heart and soul guys. Uh, they they would be as if from Hamilton, for sure. If you if you go by their traits, like I was telling them, I was doing a banquet for the provincials of Bantam and Peewee here in Oakville, the Rangers are hosting. So I was telling the kids how uh, our town got its name, the First Nations Mississaugas of the new credit, who are now down around Hagersville. But they, they were in Oakville and Mississauga, and they called Oakville White Oak uh, because they built ships out of the White Oak uh, here in town. And they had a guy named Chisholm. Colonel William Chisholm was the father of Oakville, mm-hmm. first guy to come in and build the ship building company. And they called him White Oak because of his uh, heart and because of his honesty. And, uh, again, those are the qualities that I saw Tucker and uh, Corson, especially in 2002 when Toronto had a good deep run without Matt Sundin for most of it. Yeah. Uh, they weren't on the bikes. Were, there was nothing cosmetic about those two guys. They were just completely honest,
1: uh, full of heart hockey players. The first real game at uh, what was then the New Cops Coliseum, so many years ago, was the, the Canadian national team against the Russians. It was an exhibition game, and and Shane had just recently jumped onto that team actually after, after playing for the Steelhawks, and uh, Sean Burke was the goalie. On that, and they beat the Russians six to three that night. It was uh, I was there. It was a great night, and I always have fond memories of him as a junior hockey player and as a tough, gritty guy too. Uh, we should mention we're almost out of time. Saturday and Sunday, there's going to be all kinds of events going on. Of course, the eight uh, on Discovery Drive. That's down by the Williams Coffee Pub, at where everybody knows and our Sarkoa Restaurant. Uh, you guys are going to be set up there. There's the uh, the the locker room there. Uh, the the veterans are going to be there. Of course, the NHL alumni, the ball hockey rink. It's going to be just a blast both days, and the weather's going to be great. That's
0: the biggest thing is uh although we have tents so you're you know, in the heart of winter we do this series, but for Sunday it's perfect and even both days, uh it's free. That's the other thing that families should know, that you don't pay for a thing. You get all kinds of free toques and sweaters and there's so much interactive stuff for kids to enjoy and you mentioned Darcy and Shane and the music we'll have all kinds of live music uh throughout both days, so I highly recommend folks come and join
1: us. Uh, it's going to be, and it
0: could end up being a very special telecast. Oh, it's
1: going to be, this, this is a game that matters. I mean, obviously, even if it doesn't matter for the Leafs, uh, Columbus is still shooting for position right now, too. They're in a pretty tough battle. They're, I mean, they're, they're in the they're playoffs. Right
0: no, Bill, but, they're, but you're right. They, and you don't think they want to get Toronto out of there, right? Oh, yeah. Everybody <laughs> knows that Toronto's got a good young team. Uh, it looks like, you know, they might be resigned to eighth and playing the Washington Capitals. But So just listening to your, uh, I was thinking of Pat Quinn, uh, I don't know what I'll do with it, but uh, the Leafs might need the game on Sunday. So, Danny Boy, I would say uh, we will hear those softest tread above from <laughs> Glenny Avenue down the mountainside when <laughs> the valley's hushed and the white snow. Tis you, John, Brian, Patrick, Aloysius, Quinn, will sweetly abide. That's what they're going to need. Your, your luck of the Irish.
1: And on that note, we'll leave it. Ron, thanks so much for the time today, and uh, have a great weekend. We enjoy watching. We'll pop down to see you on the weekend. Love it. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Ron McLean, of course, uh, the host of Hockey Night in Canada and the host of uh, Rogers Hometown Hockey, which is going to be here in town this weekend.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Hamilton City Council looks like they're uh, finally going to put a bow on the uh, operating budget, and uh, you'll finally find out exactly where our taxes are going to be for uh, 2017. It's been a long, arduous process it's not over yet. It still has to be ratified by City Council. Joining us to talk about uh, the process and uh, where we are right now is uh, Chris Murray, the City Manager for the City of Hamilton, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing today?
3: Doing great, Bill. How are you? Good.
1: Uh, i <laughs> still got the scars from this budget. This is uh, I, You've been with the city for a long, long time right now. I don't think we've ever had the challenges uh, in this community uh, from a financial standpoint that you had this year.
3: No, this one definitely went into overtime, and... Uh, you know, uh, I think where we've landed is, is a result of uh, all those conversations that uh, we've had with council and their commitment
1: to trying to bring in as low
3: a tax increase as possible.
1: Salaries and benefits, as always, wages and benefits, I guess more specifically, always seem to be the driving force. So is that the case this year?
3: Yeah, and I mean, certainly, uh, you know, this year uh, we started off with a dealing with a Contractual arrangements, which result in a two percent increase overall in salaries and and that obviously added pressure along with a number of other commitments i mean certainly energy is is not getting cheaper, so everything was pointing us in in uh, in a direction I know council didn't want to go into they're trying to maintain or better manage these increases, and so that's where we ended up looking at uh you know ways we can generate more revenue in this organization as well as become more efficient and And some of that answer ended up in in some service
1: reductions and some uh, job losses. Which is, uh, I don't want to say it's unprecedented, but it doesn't often happen during the budget process. I know that past city councilors have tended to shy away from doing that. As soon as you mentioned service level reductions, uh, they know there's going to be some pushback from residents about that. And staff cuts are are never a pleasant thing to do. Uh, But those things were on the table, and, and council really didn't have much choice here, did they?
3: Not really. If uh, I mean the target, as you know, was 1.8 percent tax increase. I mean we've landed at a a 2.1, which I might add that uh, amongst any of our comparators, we are the lowest and uh, in the province, and we've been in that ballpark for the last seven or eight years. Um, You know, uh, and and certainly the added pressure this year was our our red hot housing market, and. uh, and that certainly shifted more uh, of the burden onto the residential taxpayer and away from uh the industrial commercial uh office uh, taxpayer. So uh that just added more pressure to the situation but um, you know we've we've landed at a figure that uh, uh I know uh council uh judging from yesterday, is comfortable with and uh and I'll say this that uh, you know typically we we kind of We take a breather and then we go back at the budgets in the fall, and uh, I would suspect that there will be no breather. We're just going to continue to work on budgets because... We do have a challenge over the next few years in trying to keep taxes reasonable and, and still deliver great services.
1: Well, and that's uh, obviously one of the things that I know you and I talked about this some weeks ago, But uh, it, because it's not even within city council's control really, but it's it's the it's basically the valuation of the houses here in this uh, community uh, because of the real estate market. And coincidentally, there was an impact reassessment this year, uh, and a lot of folks got hit pretty hard by, by reassessment and increased values in their house. I guess that's great news if you want to sell your house. But once you apply that to to the, it's going to be the final tax rate here. Uh, and that's a pretty onerous number for a lot of folks.
3: Well, and and that uh, interesting about that is uh, you know where the housing prices really rose uh, relative to others. So, I mean uh, amalgamation is that uh, that term no one likes to be reminded of. because I know back in the day the concern was always, you know, the Flambeaus and the Stony Creeks and the Water Downs and the. Uh, Glambrooks and places like that were going to, the fear was is that they're going to be uh, responsible for, uh, 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 for all of the costs or a good portion of the costs that the city incurs. And uh, what you're seeing this year is that uh, the real estate values in the lower city certainly have risen you know, considerably higher proportionally than they have in those outlying areas and uh so you know there is a you know more of the tax burden is shifting towards the uh, the older city and uh and uh, not as much as it it uh, was in the early days with uh, with the suburbs and the, and the rural areas. so um that's what's happening and uh you know so our downtown as you know is taking off and our waterfront will be taking off even more so and our lower city with the uh, uh with an LRT investment will certainly continue moving in that direction so um, yeah, I mean uh, the shift is happening, and uh, and uh, so certainly there are some people that are experiencing more taxes uh, than others.
1: Because of that, though, Chris, and I'm glad you brought up that that first amalgamation uh, uh, budget right after the, the city was amalgamated, because there was a reassessment then too. Uh, Because of that burden, though, and the onerous burden that was on some areas of the city, uh, the council of that day uh, decided to implement some measures uh, about phasing in taxes and things of this nature and business reduction tax, things like that, uh, because of the uh, the problems that that was creating for small businesses here. Uh, Are we at that stage in the community right now where council has to have those things brought back? That toolkit has to be discussed again?
3: It's interesting uh, you raise that because, I mean, I know we... um, uh, you know, we we look at the incentives that we're using in this community to uh, to spur on non-residential tax growth, i.e., you know, uh, uh, businesses and certainly industrial properties and things of that nature. So, um, you know, it's like uh, for your listeners that know the old-fashioned pumps. Um, you know, you uh, to get the water flowing, you usually have to prime them. You got to put a bit of water into it before it starts to really move. Um, so, you know, we have incentives certainly in this community that uh, have been effective, certainly in the downtown and, and parts of uh, the lower city. You know, we need to review some of that. We need to review, uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, tax incentives uh, that, uh, or opportunities that we've created and, uh, you know, and constantly rethink these things to see if they're if we're doing too much or we're doing not enough.
1: Well, because the debate goes on and on, uh, you know, there's a residential tax rate, there's a multi-residential tax rate, and right. and and there are some people that are, are suggesting that that should be one and the same. That uh, the multi, those oftentimes it's the people that own those multi-residential facilities that feel as if they're being untaxed or taxed unfairly, rather. But right. but then you get the business end of things, and 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 clearly the small businesses are going to be concerned about this because that affects their bottom line and and could be their livelihood. Uh, but the large businesses are a bit of a conundrum for the city these days too, because oftentimes they've gone and, and appealed their taxes and yeah. uh, and been very successful, and and that sounds great. Hey, you know, uh, you know, U.S. Steel's not going to pay taxes, or somebody else is is not going to pay the same amount of tax anymore. But that's a real hit for the city.
3: Well, yeah, you're absolutely right, and I, and I think the other thing to to not lose sight of is you know we've talked about this before the what we call the click and the share economy. You know, the Airbnbs, when people come and stay in the city at someone's home, I mean, we don't benefit from that in any way, shape, or form uh, tax-wise. And, and the click economy, you can see it happening not just in Hamilton, but it's certainly pronounced in the U.S., where you see a lot of commercial retail suffering as a result of people buying a lot of their product online. And, uh, you know, we don't share in the in the sales tax like... Uh, uh, other levels of government do um uh, certainly we get gas tax which is is good but um you know the whole you know the whole revenue structure you know uh, you know eventually has to be you know thought through i think uh because uh you know the things that we rely on are those, those worlds are changing on us and like you say i mean people have the right to appeal their taxes whether you're a business or not and uh, you know we have limited tools to uh, to be able to pay for everything we're supposed to do.
1: We get this every year, and I'm going to lay this one on you too, Chris. I'm, I'm sure you're expecting it. Uh, a tweet from uh, from Fern at uh, CH Mobile Kelly that says, uh, "Can somebody please explain why I pay more property tax than the Torontonian does?" Uh, now that he's not referring to the tax rate, which as you've already mentioned is is the lowest around in Ontario these days, right. but the amount of tax. In other words, the bottom the the bottom line on your tax bill. Why is it so high here as opposed to even places like Burlington, Toronto, other other municipalities?
3: Um well, I certainly I think many of us feel like we're in some way shape or form subsidizing Toronto. I mean, uh you know, it's interesting. Uh the other day I was there and looking at a townhouse and uh that was worth 1.8 million and it, the property tax was about $5500. Um you know, when you can afford a 1.8 million dollar you know, uh, house, you know, you would think you'd be paying more than $5,500. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things that, uh, you know, we are trying to, in this community, put more and more emphasis on the other part of the tax, uh, you know, uh, spectrum, and that is, as we keep saying, the non-residential tax to uh, uh, see that they pay more of the share. I mean, right now, 88% of our tax base in fact, I think it may be getting higher as residential and we're trying to get more non-res happening here. So lands like the Stelco lands, uh, what happened to them are going to be incredibly important. We have uh, several hundred acres of uh, commercial um, uh, uh, industrial type lands up around the airport, which we need to get uh, and we are servicing and we want to bring them on so that we can start to you know, offset the, the, stre- the stresses that are put on the, uh, the residential taxpayer.
1: There was a time uh, when I was a little kid here where that was reversed, though. Those numbers were reversed, and actually industry paid more tax than residentials.
3: Yeah, and uh, and percentage-wise, I've heard, you know, uh, know, right now, as I say, we're about 88-12, 88 residential, 12 non-res. I've heard numbers as low as 60-40, but, uh, you know, those were probably in the heydays when Hamilton was... uh, you know, more of an industrial giant in the country. And, uh, uh, I mean, we still have, a, obviously, an important uh, industry here. Uh, but, you know, fortunately, um, it, we are a more diversified in the economy now than we've ever been. Uh, so we have a, a, a real broad array of jobs that are available in this community. And the other thing is, you know, I say... It is a good thing that we're attached to, you know, the greater Toronto area, that we are one massive economic region. And, uh, you know, we're lucky that we are one hour away from three border crossings where 90% of all the land trade with the U.S. takes place. You know, uh, we're, we're fortunate in the sense of, of yes, our taxes are always going to be too high for, for people, and... Uh, but, you know, we are part of a very large economic region that is moving and growing, and uh, and Hamilton is going to be able to take advantage of that. So.
1: Well, and for those that are hearkening back and wishing, you know, pining for the old days again, yeah. uh, you got to remember Burlington Street was rife with uh, with factories then that employed thousands and thousands of people. It wasn't just the two steel companies. It was Procter and & Gamble and Firestone and, and Westinghouse and on and on it goes all the way down there. Uh, And they covered a lot of that. But the other element that people always tend to leave out of that discussion, though, Chris, we were a smaller city back in those days. I mean, it was only the city of Hamilton. Uh, There were, what, what, 300,000 people, I think, back here in the early 1960s, if that – uh, yeah. And the city limits of those times was basically Rymal Road, and and you know then in uh, Dundas, Creek all those places they were own communities. They weren't even counted in that. So of course, uh, you know, you residential are going to take a bigger burden here because there are more of them now than there were back in those days, and there's less industry, and that's that's a fact of life in just about every community now.
3: Yeah, I mean we're we're five hundred and thirty thousand people, and the next twenty five years we're going to grow. As uh, expected by the province to about 780,000. I mean, I'd much rather have the problem. Of how do you accommodate growth in the, in the right way, than you know, be a Detroit or Cleveland, which is just experiencing nothing but the population decline. Um, so, I mean, it's you know, it, it, it's good in that sense. But you know, as we've said before, I mean, the 2017 budget uh, was certainly a tough budget. Um, 2018, 2019, 2021. Um, uh, which is the you know the period of this residential assessment that's uh, that impact is has looked at i mean it'll get revisited in, and you know in 2022 so we've got another three years of of uh, of steady pressure but um you know we've we've been doing lots of things in in the in this organization uh, and it's it's worth mentioning again that um you know, the, the part that I have some influence on obviously is the city administration and the and the frontline services We were asked to come in at one point eight we came in at one point one in fact there are departments here that are below zero in terms of what their budget uh, uh, assignment is in 2017 so you know a, a lot of credit does go to you know the our front line and our management for for looking at ways to uh, to uh, you know uh, spend less. Um, But, you know, and the other thing worth mentioning to people, and they're going to see more and more of it, is, uh, you know, performance metrics. I mean, we want to not just say we're a good organization. We want to be able to prove it. Um, And there's a a rigorous program across the entire organization. Uh, You know, we want to talk to you about our continuous improvement efforts. And uh, we want to demonstrate to to people that, uh, you know, we don't assume everything to stay the same. I mean, we do make changes and uh, we're looking for better ways of delivering service so I mean and that's what citizens expect Uh, they expect their taxes to be uh, as low as possible and they expect good service and uh, and when things don't go well they expect us to fix it and uh, and that's reasonable.
1: Some of these discussions actually happened in camera behind closed doors uh, because of the uh, the staffing implications and things of this nature Uh, and and those will eventually be made public I guess after council ratifies this in the next week or so we hope anyway but uh we're we're told anyway chris that uh that service levels uh could be impacted in some way shape or form now we don't know whether that that's a big deal or whether it's something we might not even notice uh is there going to be any shock when we finally get some of these details uh no. you think of the big things like garbage collection snow clearing all that sort of stuff in other words the the basic toolkit for for municipalities are those all going to be impacted or any of them impacted
3: no the 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 ones that are sacred are sacred i mean there's You know, people expect their garbage to be picked up, uh, you know, on a regular frequency. They expect the snow to be removed, and they expect parks to be, you know, kept in great shape. And, uh, I mean, we do have $100 million in our overall program here that's being spent on infrastructure. So uh, I don't want anyone uh, thinking that we're not investing in our roads and our bridges. Certainly transit is there. Um, And so, I mean, you know, $27 27 million is is being uh, invested in West Harbor. We're going to evolve, uh, and that's in terms of infrastructure. We got another 14 million recreational facilities, 10 million uh, to support open space and development. Uh, spending uh, some money on fire and paramedic services of around 7 million. Our long-term care facilities, another 1.7 city housing. Actually, uh, day before yesterday, uh, you know, pretty wonderful announcement of uh, major investment in poverty uh... specifically in housing so i mean we're we are spending money in the right places and we're trying to run the organization uh... much more effectively and uh... and you know we want you know we want to be a transparent government we have to be and uh... and i think in the future you're we're going to have to leverage technology uh... much better in a more coordinated way than we are right now uh, i look at our own uh... our library board and uh... the great decisions they made and Ken Roberts uh you know took an organization about ten fifteen years ago made some strategic investments in technology and uh and through attrition he draw he drew down the number of people working in the library system but then at the same time he doubled the amount of service they were providing um, so it he's that's a pretty wonderful blueprint for how you can use technology to uh to deliver better services and not necessarily you know have uh, these uh, really um, serious impact on on people's lives and uh... so i mean these are models that are here in hamilton we can take advantage of them in fact we are going to um, so you know technology is being used by governments all around the world in effective ways and uh... why would we be any different
1: well i i know ken roberts is in semi-retirement right now but he's available for, as a consultant if you want to bring him in i know he'd be happy to talk to you about that i, I got about a minute left here chris let me ask yeah. you, 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 you you mentioned transit obviously is is a key element it was a very contentious issue during the budget discussions this year uh there are no cutbacks in transit but you're not moving as aggressively with that program as you had first thought as council had wanted to right now you given the fact that as you say things are only going to get tougher in the next two or three years are we backing off that transit plan uh until further notice or is it going to be back on the plate for next year
3: uh it'll be back on the plate um again uh, the reason why we we're uh you know just uh taking a bit of a breath this year is because i mean uh you know if we're going to order buses and uh and we're not going to have uh and they're not going to arrive until you know in 2018 or so why would you hire staff uh you know you, when when the bus- buses arrive you know the staff uh, need to be ready to uh, uh to drive them so i mean we're just wanting to make sure that uh if we're going to grow the workforce, uh, we do it to match the infrastructure that's coming on board. So, um, you know, and I mean, we we've been clear. I think uh, certainly as staff, uh, to an aging population and to a city that is growing up as opposed to out. I mean, transit is an incredibly important service. Um, you know, people need it to uh, to get to the jobs that uh, you know don't pay the fifty or hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, those. You know, people do rely on transit to to uh, you know to maintain their quality of life, and so uh, I know council is focused on that, and uh, I'm sure we'll do a good job.
1: Chris Murray, city manager, as uh, we put the finishing touches on the budget. Chris, thanks as always for the time. Have a great weekend.
3: You too. Take
4: care.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Obviously, uh, the discussion around the world right now, the United Nations and in other capitals, of course, is the uh, U.S. airstrike in Syria yesterday, which has had uh, huge ramifications. Joining us to talk about this is Stephen Sadman, who is the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us this morning. Good morning, Bill. Uh, were you surprised by this?
4: um depends on how, how far out you look because uh Trump's foreign policy can change uh the drop you know drop of a hat uh you know 4 or 5 days ago both he and his secretary of state were assuring Assad essentially that he could stay in place and now we have a, a, a air strike so it is a bit surprising yes
1: well, yeah, I, I know that some people have dragged out some of the tweets that citizen Donald Trump made back uh, when President Obama was still in office and urging the president not to involve himself in airstrikes or to get congressional approval. Uh, he didn't either in that. Uh, so I, I guess uh, the one predictable thing about Donald Trump is that he's unpredictable.
4: That's right. And that's the real challenge here is that uh, we don't know what's going to happen next, just like we didn't know what that this was going to happen, that he likes to be unpredictable and he seems to listen to the last person who talks to him. So we really don't know what's going to happen next and that means that it's hard to read into this one attack what the, what the strategy going forward is.
1: How would something like this be planned? My understanding from at least what I heard on ABC News this morning, Stephen, is that uh, is the White House informed uh, Putin and Russia about this uh, beforehand. In other words, they, they didn't want to surprise anybody with this.
4: Well, they certainly do not want to surprise the Russians because there are Russians at this airfield. And uh, while this all is all very complicated, the last thing the United States wanted was to kill some Russians. Uh, But, of course, telling the Russians means telling the Syrians. So we hit an airfield that was largely empty of personnel, and so we were hitting uh, planes, um, perhaps, and making some potholes in in the airfield.
1: Which is, just I want people to picture that in their minds. So in other words, they it's like the alarm bell went off a few hours before this and they cleared this place out. So as much as it may sound a little silly to suggest, is, was this really symbolic as much as anything else?
4: Oh, it's absolutely symbolic more than anything else. I mean, the, the, there was a deliberate effort not to hit the chemical weapons storage facility because they didn't want to have sarin gas leak out to, and kill more Syrians. And so, while there was some num- some damage done to some planes, the Russians can easily sell or, or give more more planes to Syria. So the real thing about this is symbolic. Is sending a message, maybe to Assad, that there are certain forms of of violence that are, are too much, and that he should just stick to his barrel bombs and his artillery and his other ways of doing damage to the Syrian populace or it could be more than that depending on what happens next but it's it's this is entirely symbolic it's it, in some ways people are saying that this is actually trump enforcing the red line that that obama set out uh, several years ago
1: Okay, but, you know, when I heard of this and, and saw the reaction to this, as a matter of fact, I uh, made this the topic of my blog earlier this morning as well. I was reminded of Wag the Dog, and and that goes back to the Clinton administration, of course, uh, when things were getting pretty hot at home uh, with uh, Monica Lewinsky and, and impeachment talks and things of this nature. Uh, all of a sudden, the, there were military actions being pushed onto the Bosnian situation, although the, the administration previously said they weren't going to do that. Uh, subsequently, of course, they made a movie about it uh, not too long after that with Robert De Niro. Uh, is this a, a wag-the-dog redux? Was was this carefully staged to try to take some of the heat off Trump because of some of the things that are going on back home?
4: Uh, like the events that you're referring to, I think there's more coincidence than intent. That is that uh, the Kosovo conflict happened at the same time as the Lewinsky scandal, and that was more driven by events in Kosovo and by Slobodan Lovjevic than driven by Bill Clinton. Uh, this time, uh, this maybe was a gift given to Trump by Assad, not deliberately so, but uh, he might have been leaning towards this. And in fact, a lot of people were saying the last couple of days with Trump's declining popularity, this might be something that he might do. Uh, so there might be something to that. Um, but it's also, I think, a case of he felt the pressure that of having to do something, because in Washington, D.C., there's always pressure to do something when something happens in the world, whether doing something is the right or wrong idea.
1: But it seems to be convenient, I I guess, for Trump at this stage, given the the, the reaction to this. And I'm wondering, maybe I'm reading too much into it, uh, what that conversation was like between the White House and and, uh, the Kremlin uh, when this was going on. I mean, because this this also, in some people's minds, dispels this idea about this relationship between Putin and Trump to suggest, no, he'll he'll do this. He doesn't matter if he gets Putin mad, uh, or does he? Uh, I mean, it just seems as if there was an awful lot of crafting that went into this whole idea.
4: Yeah, well the thing is that there wasn't actually direct communication between Putin and Trump over this particular thing. It was there was an already established communications line between American and Russian forces in Syria to make sure that the various planes that are flying over Syria, Russian, American, Canadian, French, British, whatever, uh don't run into each other, don't don't uh share the same airspace in a way that might lead to a crisis. So uh, the one of the consequences of, of this uh, airstrike is that the Russians are pulling out of that agreement, or at least suspending it for the time being to register their upset. And that might lead to some unfortunate interactions between uh, American and, and, and Russian planes over in the skies over Syria.
1: Well, and that's a bit of a problem anyway, because, I mean, the accusations, of course, have been that uh, the Russians were not just uh, propping up and supporting Assad in, in what he was doing, but at the same time actually helping with some of the airstrikes.
4: Oh, absolutely. And the Russians have been doing a lot of work the past several years to keep Assad in place. They talk about participating in the anti-ISIS war, but most of the Russian airstrikes have been aimed at other groups within Syria that have been mostly targeting Assad. Uh, so their efforts have not been uh, very uh, helpful.
1: What does this do to that scenario then, uh, with Russia backing Assad? And, and clearly, Barack Obama wanted Assad out and, and, and was not successful in that endeavor. Uh, as you mentioned, in, in some of Trump's and Tillerson's uh, comments over the last couple of days, there seemed to be a hands off approach. Does this signal a change in policy, or is this a one off?
4: That's the question of the day. We don't really know, because up till now, it looked like the Trump administration was, was, might be edging towards some sort of grand bargain with. The Russians decide with the Russians and Assad because Trump feels that ISIS is the greater threat to the United States than Assad is, whereas actually it's Assad that's been doing most of the killing and therefore creating more of the refugee crisis and and also providing ISIS with a lot of oxygen uh, by by being less by being less abhorrent than, than Assad
1: so with that in mind then uh, you have to wonder about the u s commitment there and, and whether they're going to ramp this up uh, how soon, Stephen, before we start to get some inkling as to exactly where they're going with this?
4: I can't give you a timeline on this because the problem with the Trump administration is that they don't make policy in the normal way. It's not usually well developed. While uh, Lieutenant General McMaster is now running the National Security Council and it's a bit more systematic, all that takes is for Trump to you know, be triggered by some story that he sees on TV or in, in Breitbart, wakes up, uh, tweets, and then that tweet becomes policy. So we don't really know what the timeline is, but uh, the next few days we'll be telling in terms of at least where this uh, trends. But again, Trump can change uh, uh, the drop of a hat, and so it's really hard to say that that anything hap- that happens today or tomorrow determines the future for, in, in any kind of clear way.
1: Stephen, when this decision was made, uh, who's sitting around the desk in the Situation Room with the president? Uh, who who, the, who has his ear at this stage to 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 move him toward this policy?
4: Well, it's clear that that he had consulted with uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis about this, and this this kind of way it was drawn out does suggest that Mattis had played a role because it was a decisive in the sense that it's sixty missiles; it wasn't just one or two. But it was also finite in that it was only one air- airfield, and there was again there was warning to the Russians so that way there would be no risk or ale- at least reduced risk of escalation. So I think this has Mattis's fingerprints all over it. Um, I think that if they wanted to be more decisive in terms of you know really tipping the balance of about about making this a war against Assad, then you would have seen more targets so that so I think that uh, Mattis and perhaps McMaster have have done their their best to try to keep this contained. Uh,
1: what, what role, if any, does Jared Kushner play in all of this? I mean, Steve Bannon was was uh, basically removed from the Security Council just a, a couple of days ago. Uh, is he still in the mix here, or has Kushner taken over that role?
4: Uh, we really can't say for sure. I really think that as long as Bannon's in the White House, he'll still have influence, whether he's on this National Security Council or not. If he's the last guy speaking to Trump, then he's the most powerful guy in the room. Because whoever is the last person talking to Trump is the one who's going to shape, uh, shape Trump's mind on these things. So Bannon's still there. Kushner, I just don't know if anybody's going to follow what he has to say on these things. I mean, yes, he is the son-in-law of Trump, and so he's been put in a lot of positions of responsibility, but I don't know what he's actually saying at these meetings. Uh, and I don't know if anybody's listening to him. He comes off as being sort of this young guy that doesn't have a clue, but maybe he has. maybe he's brighter than he appears to be.
1: The uh, reaction to this uh, in a global spectrum, uh, Stephen, uh, is, I guess, is to be expected. I mean, Russia obviously has denounced this, as uh, has some of the other allies over there. Uh, he's generally, uh, from what I've seen anyway, getting support for what he's done here from uh, from many of the, the NATO countries here, including Canada, of course. Prime Minister Trudeau weighed in on this today.
4: Yes, I think that most countries in the world are, uh, most of the democracies are going to support the United States, and most of Russia's friends are going to support Russia. It's just the way the world works uh, right now. Um, I, I don't think there's a whole lot for us all to do, but but comment on it, because it's not as if anybody's really up for having a land war in
1: Syria anytime soon. I would hope not. <laughs> what can only imagine. Stephen, thanks as always. Great to have you on the program today. I really appreciate your input. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Stephen Saban, of course, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the uh, Patterson uh, International Affairs at Carleton University.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: So the reaction uh, around the world seems to be supportive of uh, Trump's idea to uh, launch the missile strike against Syria yesterday. What's going on in Washington? How's it being received there? Uh, to get those answers, we're pleased to welcome uh, Reggie Cicchini to the program. Journalist with Global News, based in uh, Washington D.C. Good morning, Reggie. How are you doing today? Good morning. Doing well. How's uh, how's the reaction? What's go- what's happening on the Hill today? How how's this being received in the Capitol?
2: You know, it's it's not as uh, as welcoming as the rest of the world leaders have been. There are a lot of lawmakers right now on Capitol Hill that are left scratching their heads saying, eh, this goes a little bit against the law. We're supposed to be able to give congressional approval for some kind of strike. There are some other lawmakers saying that this is in the president's purview and that he was able to do this. So you've got two sides right now fighting back and forth saying, well, what actually happened here? But there are a good number of Republican lawmakers that are saying, good for the president, good on what he did.
1: It's an interesting debate, isn't it? Because, I mean, uh, back in the day when he was just citizen Donald Trump, while Obama was still in the White House, uh, he tweeted uh, about the situation specifically and said that uh, the president should never actually initiate a contact like this with a foreign power without congressional support. Yet, you see what happened yesterday.
2: I do, and we, there are a lot of people out there that say that this might have been a knee-jerk reaction because he was, he appeared to have been really, you know, uh, taken back by these pictures of, uh, children that were hurt, of these citizens that were lying, you know, either dead on the ground or gasping for air, and, you know, reports suggested that that really hurt him, so there are some saying that this was a, you know, a, a quick reaction. He wanted to show that he was in charge and that he wanted to get things straightened out flip side, you've got people saying, well, maybe this was not the best thing to do because you made one move and now we're left waiting to see what's the next move. Well,
1: and therein lies the big question, I guess, that everybody's talking about right now. And and I'm sure that's part of the discussion going on in Washington right now. Is this a one-off or is this a, a change in policy for the Trump administration?
2: Well, that's what lawmakers are trying to figure out right now. I mean, the House Minority Leader, Nancy Pelosi, she's now uh, requested that the Speaker reconvene everybody right now because they are off on a two-week recess and they would like to discuss what's going on. When the President makes an action like this, he has 48 hours to report to Congress. He hasn't done that yet. She wants everyone together to say, look, we've discussed what you just did and now we need to look at what's going forward because you can't keep making these kind of one-off moves and say that that's going to be it and not know what's going on next. I want
1: to get the reaction from from the, what's going on in, in on the Hill, Reggie. Uh, we were just talking about this a couple of seconds ago before you joined us. Uh, the assertion that some people are suggesting is that this was, well, it was very staged, obviously, because uh, they did, there was a communication, diplomatic communication between the Kremlin and, and the White House about this, so they knew about this. And, and essentially, uh, this was a, an abandoned base. I mean, there were no, a per, very few people that were there in in from a military standpoint. And on any other given day, uh, you'd find Russian fighter pilots there, but they weren't there that day. So they knew this was coming.
2: They did know it was coming, and we're, you know we're not sure who actually had the communiqué here. Whether it was you know somebody close to you know the top of the Kremlin, or whether it was just kind of defense people that were involved in the conversation. That being said, there are reports that there were some you know Russian military people in and around the base at the time of this, and that's why they were given the heads up to get you know to move forward. There are some saying though, there you know reports came out this morning that if Washington talked to Russia about this, there's a very good opportunity that Russia, because they back Syria, they told Syria about this. So it's kind of you know Donald Trump says that likes to keep the element of surprise hidden once this conversation went forward everybody linked to this conflict right now would have been in the loop but
1: uh, and, and clearly they, they certainly were which which begs the question was this really more symbolic than it was strategic in other words uh, just say i did something but uh, I, i'm sure some jets were damaged and but those are easily replaceable not so much if if russian lives have been affected by this
2: Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they struck, you know, a, a kind of, you know, middle of nowhere, smaller air base and, you know, ruined their runway and ruined a couple of, uh, you know, pieces of infrastructure around there. But there's no confirmation right now that that's the runway that was used to deliver this, uh, this chemical weapons attack. And if that one is ruined, what's to say that the Syrian government, if that's who is behind it, is not going to just go to another air base and try this all over again. And then it's up to Donald Trump to sit there and say, what do I do now?
1: The uh, reaction that I've seen, of course, uh, initially when, when this was happened was, as we said in many circles, supportive in other capitals anyway. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has weighed in on it and, and suggested that he's supportive of, of the action uh, given what happened earlier this week, of course, with the the gas attack. But uh, there was some concern in, in democratic circles I'm hearing today, Reggie, that, uh, that this is really an attempt, uh, obviously, a, a, it was the president taking advantage of, of circumstances in Syria right now, but basically trying to take the heat off. In other words, change the channel here. I'm going to do something decisive uh, to try to take some of the heat off to low approval ratings, uh, the fact that his health care bill got gassed, and a number of other things that have been happening uh, between he and the Congress this week, that this was supposed to be a game changer and and, and was was very strategic as opposed to something that was a, a gut reaction to what he actually saw. What are you hearing about that?
2: Well, look, some Democrats are going to say this is nothing more than a distraction. You know, anytime something big comes up that involves Donald Trump's name, you can guarantee within an hour you either get a tweet from him or you get something that's kind of spinning a story completely out of control so that you lose your focus on this. This one is going to be a little more difficult to do that because if russia is the big conversation right now and all the different kind of factions that russia might be involved with washington it's difficult to go into a conflict with syria where russia is the biggest backer of it and try to say well let's take the focus off of what's going on with russia right now because all you're doing is antagonizing russia and kind of pulling you know the the strings in all kinds of different directions russia says that they're not impressed with what donald trump just did and that's putting a strain on u.s russia relations those relations were already strange so now it's a lo- chance to look forward and say well who's actually going to take the next card here who's actually going to do what next. Is this going to change the policy, though? I mean, because uh, both Trump and and
1: Rex Tillerson had just recently made statements that essentially we were giving us the message that uh, that they were okay with Assad staying in power in Damascus uh, as long as as you know he lived within the bounds of of uh, the uh, you know the trying to fight ISIS and all this sort of stuff. In other words, they were buying into to the the, the usual answers uh, that Assad has given about why he uh, why he's doing what he's doing in that country. That it's not really about the civil war; it's all about fighting terrorism, etc. And and Trump seemed to be comfortable with that but with the action yesterday does that signal that there's been a change in US policy towards Assad himself?
2: Well, we don't know if it's towards Assad himself or what's actually going on, because I mean, if you think only a couple of hours before this happened, we kind of had this waffly, wishy-washy conversation with the president where he said, well, something needs to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. And then it was a complete 180 to what Rex Tillerson had said when we're going to leave everything in power. And then we go and kind of drop a bomb on the country as potentially a warning or as a, you know, a sign of, look, we're here to fight and we're going to fight for what's going on. It's there are a lot of circles that are being drawn right now that haven't been connected yet. and, And we're trying to figure out, you know, what point leads to what point, and who's actually going to make the next move.
1: Reggie, thanks so much for the time. I know it's a busy day for you there in the uh, the Washington uh, area, and uh, we'll see what the reaction is and uh, how the Congress is going to respond to that. I appreciate the time today. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Ciccini, of course, uh, journalist with Global News, based in Washington, D.C.
2: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.